Hello, Curious Mothers. This is Kristen Daly. I just wanted to give you a heads up that this episode deals with a very serious topic of suicide. It is important to know the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 1-800-273-TALK. That is 1-800-273-8255. We hope that you find this episode, although it discusses a very hard topic, as being some important information for you and your mothering. Thank you for joining us. where we aim to create a comfortable space that allows for active discussion without judgment. Find us at thecuriousmother.com and follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at thecuriousmother. Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Melissa Miller. And I'm Kristen Daly. And today we are very lucky to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Amanda McGow. She is a clinical psychologist who works with children, adolescents, and adults. And she specializes in dialectical behavior therapy. And she is on the board of the North Carolina Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Amanda, we were so lucky to be at a conference last week where you presented a training for clinicians on suicide. And afterwards, Kristen and I thought, oh my gosh, we're so privileged to have this information, but we really think that moms need a lot of this information too. So um, maybe we could just jump in and talk about if moms are worried about their children, what are some things they need to be on the lookout for? Absolutely. I do think this is information that that all parents need to have. Um, One of the biggest things that we know is parents should be looking out for a change in their child's behavior. We typically begin to see changes in sleep or mood or behavior um, prior to someone having a suicide attempt. So this might mean that maybe your child is a little bit more irritable or maybe they're more withdrawn than they used to be. Um, maybe they're not you know, enjoying things that they used to care a lot about. And we also see children and adolescents begin to talk about death. Um, if your child's making statements about things would be better for everyone if I wasn't here or I wish I just didn't have to, to live through this particular thing, um, or talking about feeling like they're a burden to others. Um, burdensomeness is a, a big risk factor. So when your child feels like um, you know, people have to suffer because they're in this world, we really want to pay attention to things like that. Wow. So tell me a little bit more about how parents can recognize some of those factors, because I think that I know just even as you're saying that, I was trying to imagine um, what it would be like for me to be able to notice that in my kiddo, like especially that burdensome part or even the, um, the increase in distress. Absolutely. So I think one key thing for all parents is to recognize that you know your child. I think parents um, need to rely on their instincts. If something feels a little bit off to you, even if you can't put your finger on exactly what it is, then it's time to have a conversation with your child. Sometimes we are able to clearly see something or clearly hear something in what our child is saying that might be alarming to us, and then that's our signal. But other times it may just be a gut feeling that a mom has. How do you start that conversation? Because I think a lot of parents are really worried about, what if I say the wrong thing? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of parents are also worried that if they ask about suicide, that they're planting an yes. idea, that they're yep. giving their child you know, this suggestion. And we know through lots and lots of research that that's not how it works. Um, we need to have an open, calm, and non-judgmental conversation. Um, moms can really set the tone for what this goes like. Um, the calmer that they are, the more that they kind of normalize that it's okay to talk about these things, um, the better the conversation's gonna go, and the more likely their child is to open up to them and share any struggles that they're having. So, okay, that feels huge to me because I think a lot of parents, if their child does start to say, I am having thoughts of I don't want to be alive anymore, that I can see parents getting real emotional. Mm-hmm. And so um, how should a parent kind of react, kind of you're saying normalizing calmly? How do they do that? Yes, <laughs> right? That's so hard. I, I can relate to that too. I mean, you can just imagine that being your child and, and that would immediately invoke maybe the most intense fear that a parent could experience. And so we need to recognize, first of all, that that reaction in all of us is completely normal. I encourage parents to to pause, take a second, you know, even if it's a deep breath. um, If you have a little bit more time than that, that's fine too. But just kind of think about where do I want to be coming from in this conversation. And the calmer that you can be while still, of course, expressing care and concern for your child, the better this is going to go. But if a parent approaches this conversation and they're really freaked out and they're all upset, it's going to be much harder for that child to share what Mm -hmm. they're actually feeling. They might even want to protect their parents' feelings in that moment and say everything's okay when it's not. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that could even be kind of feeding into that burdensome thing, right? You know, like if I make my parent really upset, then I'm showing that I'm too much of, you know, I'm, I'm too much for them to handle. So true. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want to avoid. Um, Sometimes I'll even coach parents like, okay, mom and dad, you guys practice this together. You know, give each other feedback about how you're approaching this question. And I encourage parents to use the word suicide directly. I mean, we know kids by about second or third grade understand the concept of ending one's own life. Um, And certainly older kids are very familiar with that word. Um, But it's okay to be that direct, but we need to do so in a calm, non-judgmental manner. And we don't want to jump immediately into reasons why the person shouldn't want to die. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we'll say, but your life is fine, or but your dad and I love you, or, you know, but Mm -hmm. you've got friends and you've got soccer. You know, we start kind of listing the things that we view as positives in their lives to try to dissuade them from this thought, but that does not work. That doesn't foster open communication, and it's not very effective in changing someone's thoughts about suicide. So what, what is the more effective path, you know? It really is more just kind of sticking to um, listening, um, and if your child is expressing suicidal thoughts, then connecting them um, to support, professional support, um, you know, a licensed mental health professional who can help them. Um, If there's imminent risk, meaning that you think your child could take steps immediately to try to end their life, um, they're thinking that they have a particular plan in mind perhaps, or they have a strong wish to die, then you're going to be looking at taking them um, to your local emergency room. Can you say more about kind of imminent risks? What would the warning signs be that your child is needing to go to the hospital? Absolutely. So um, again, I mentioned, you know, having a plan. So Mm -hmm. if you ask your child, well, have you thought about what you would do to end your life? And they have some ideas that they're sharing with you. 
Um, if you find that your child has been researching online, for example, ways to die by suicide, we want to be very concerned about that. Any type of thinking or action towards a plan is a major concern that can indicate imminent risk. Mm -hmm. um, we also kind of look at assessing, um, you know, what is the wish to live versus the wish to die. That can feel a little tricky for parents, even for clinicians sometimes, that can be a little bit tricky. But if you've got a child who's sitting there saying, you know, the majority of me or all of me wants to die, I don't want to be here anymore, mm -hmm. then we really need to consider that an imminent risk as well mm -hmm. and do an emergency intervention. So it sounds like parents need to be pretty brave and ask the questions. I can, I can see how hard that would be, but you really have to ask, how strongly are you considering this? Have, how much have you thought about this? What are you planning on doing? Absolutely. Okay. Because without asking those questions, there is no way for us to know. And this is not a situation where we can just kind of, you know, make a guess, if you will, or, or try to read between the lines and feel comfortable with what may or may not happen to our child. What are the, uh, do you know what the rates are of suicidal thoughts in children and adults? You know, how common that actually is? It actually is fairly common. Um, you know, it's certainly not something that everyone necessarily encounters, um, but we know more, we know more about um, those rates within um, adults and about, you know, three to five percent of the population here in our country um, in any given year experiences severe, um, or I should say serious, um, suicidal thoughts. Um, and so for adolescents, I think with all the things that they're going through, for example, those um, numbers would likely be higher. Um, yeah. It really is not, you know, an automatic, you know, take your child to the hospital if they're having suicidal thoughts. It's more about those factors that I was mentioning when we talked about is imminent risk present versus being able to wait and connect them with their pediatrician or um, a mental health care provider out in the community. Are there any other additional risk factors? You know, so we have like the, the risk factors associated with what parents can see in their own kid. But what are some other things that uh, are understood to increase the risk of losing a child to suicide? There are actually a lot of things. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit more about warning signs at this mm -hmm. point. Um, when we look at risk factors, we're talking about things that might happen in a person's environment. Um, so those can be changes in relationships, um, losses um, that a person experiences, family history, um, or, you know, uh, history of knowing someone who has um, died by suicide or had suicide attempts. Those things can increase risk in multiple ways. Um, you know, we look at um, mental health diagnoses that can increase risk as well, um, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, um, just as examples. Um, there are others as well. Um, but all of those can be risk factors that can contribute um, to the likelihood of someone developing suicidal thoughts or behaviors. How common is suicide in adolescents? So it's actually the second leading cause of death um, among youth. Um, it's still a relatively rare event though, um, but it is just behind accidents in our country in terms of the number of lives lost each year to suicide. Mm -hmm. So this is a very serious issue that parents really need to be educated about. Yeah, I would say that one of the questions that I get with the parents I work with is sometimes they will feel like uh, kiddos will use suicidal threats as a way of trying to get attention or and I feel like even in our 
our culture, sometimes we view a suicidal attempt as an intention-seeking behavior. Can you say a little bit more about, for those parents who might question whether or not they should take this seriously, what, um, what happens there? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, I encounter this a lot in my work with families and even in my work with teenagers. They're bringing Mm -hmm. the same question into the room as well as they talk about their friends sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, What I encourage families to do is to always take this seriously. This is not something that we can make a guess about. And you don't know um, always what's driving the suicidal behavior. So we're going to take this seriously every time. Um, And once you're connected into treatment, then a treatment provider may be able to further equip Mm -hmm. parents to determine what steps need to be taken with their child based on what's actually um, behind Mm -hmm. the suicidal thoughts. But this is not something that we should simply write off as attention-seeking or a way to get out of an exam tomorrow (laughs) or, you know, any of those other excuses. It's just not um, something that we can take that chance and be wrong about. Yeah, yeah. What is it? actually like for people uh, when they reach out for help? Like, so I know in the training we talked about there are lots of different options. So first let's talk about the suicide hotline because I think that that is a really good resource. And so can you talk a little bit about what it's like for people to call the suicide hotline? Yes, so the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline um, is a 1-800 number um, that anybody can call. It's 24-7. These are trained professionals who are there to support you um, in a suicidal crisis or just any type of mental health issue, um, any type of conversation they are available for. Um, I think a lot of people fear that if they call the Lifeline that, first of all, it won't be confidential. It is. Mm -hmm. No one else finds out that information. And then secondly, that it's like automatically going to activate the police or the ambulance to show up at their house. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. Um, It's extremely rare, in fact, that the Lifeline has to engage um, emergency services in order to keep someone safe. Mm -hmm. Um, Research has shown that most people feel that the Lifeline was very beneficial to them. Um, They feel like they've gotten the support that they need and and that it it stopped them in the moment of crisis. So we Mm -hmm. want to encourage people to reach out in that way if they need it. So it seems like a resource that parents should make available to their children. Um, And also, would you suggest that they call with their child if if they're worried? Yeah, absolutely. Parents could. Um, I do think this is a number everybody should have. Most of my clients are going to get this number from me, and I'm going to ask them to put it in in their phone right in front of me even. Um, I mean, I think it's a great resource, but sure, any family member could call along with um, a loved one that they're concerned about and, and get guidance and support and feedback, even if that person's not willing to call with you, but you're not sure what to do, you could call the Lifeline and they will walk you through what to do to help your family member. That's Mm. great. Because I have to imagine as a parent, it's so scary and you feel so alone. And if this happens at midnight, you, you want some answers right there. Absolutely. So what happens if it is an imminent risk and you feel like, I don't, I don't think we can make it through the night. I need to take my child to the hospital. What does that look like? Mm That's a really good question, too, and I think um, one that many people in this position would wonder a lot about, what exactly does this mean? And it does look a little bit different than maybe other hospital experiences that families have had for other um, medical emergencies. Mm -hmm. The way that it works here is that family members or 
you know, ambulance or police if needed, could escort the person to the emergency room. And then typically that person is going to be put in a secure location where there are not objects that a person could harm themselves with. Sometimes, you know, I tell my adolescents ahead of time, this probably means that you're going to have to give up your clothes. You're going to end up wearing scrubs Mm. uh, because they just want to keep you safe. Um, It can feel a little bit weird, but this truly is more for your protection. Sometimes, depending on circumstances such as capacity at the ER or the individual client's needs, parents may or may not be able to sit with their child while they're waiting for the nursing team, um, the therapist, and the psychiatrist to come in and do an evaluation. It does take several hours, and that can be a frustration for families. This is not something where, in most cases, you're going to be able to be to walk in and be immediately seen and assessed. Like a lot of emergency room situations, it does require a little bit of patience, but it's well worth the patience of sitting there um, in order to make sure that your child is safe. Mm-hmm. And once you meet with that treatment team, they are going to come up with a recommendation, and they're going to talk to you as the parent and say, this is what we think is the most appropriate plan of care for your child, and walk you through what all of that means. Mm-hmm. It sounds like I, that it's probably really scary, but at the same time, it also provides a lot of support, and it puts a lot more eyes on your child, which I would imagine also feels a little bit more secure. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. I mean, it is hard um, for the adolescents, for the parents both. I hear lots of distress around that experience, but also a lot of relief Mm -hmm. in knowing that their child was getting the care that they needed in order to be safe and be here tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what do we know is effective or, or what do we understand is helpful for people who are going through problems with suicidal thoughts? One of the biggest things that we can do to support them and that moms could do is to validate their child. You know, with validation, we're really expressing that we understand where a person is coming from or we can kind of put them in context um, and that we're being non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. We're not saying that we agree necessarily with their desire or thoughts about suicide, not at all, of course but we are showing that just kind of warm compassion for where they are at so that they feel supported. There's a lot of research that talks about connection Mm -hmm. within suicide prevention and many more things that I think are gonna be coming out in the next few years. And so validation is a part of that connection piece Mm -hmm. that people need in order to lower that suicide risk. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about connection. What does that mean? So connection um, is in in multiple ways. So it's in your immediate relationships um, with people such as family, friends, but it's also just in the general sense of community. Do you feel connected to your school community? Do you feel connected to you know, your faith community or anything like that. Um, What we have found in research is that a lot of adolescents and adults who have suicide attempts or who die by suicide feel very disconnected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And there's even some theories um, related to that out in the um, suicidology research that are proving more and more to be accurate. Mm -hmm. And so if we can build a stronger sense of connection for people, then we're lowering risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's incredible. Um, Is there anything, you know, kind of, I love the idea that parents can feel like if we're staying connected, if we're really being a support system so that they're not feeling so alone, that's one tool. Is there anything else that we need to be aware of about our homes and having a safe environment? 
Absolutely. There are some additional things that parents can do. Parents can think a little bit about what types of things they have around the home that could be used as a weapon. So for example, we know that simply owning a gun and having it within the home, even if it's secured, increases suicide risk for all family members by three. So wow. your, your risk is three times higher oh, um, with gun ownership. Crazy. So even if it's locked up, Absolutely. You know, or I'll hear um, sometimes like, well, we've done, uh, you know, we've made sure we've taught gun safety. So even with like maybe some of the ways that people try to feel like they've kept themselves safe, it still increases risk that much. It does. That's national research. And we know that half of all suicides um, involve the use of a gun. Yeah. And so that's a really important, you know, risk factor that parents could take steps to begin to to control Mm -hmm. um, so that that's not something that their child could find a way to access. Again, even if they've had safety training, even if parents feel like, you know, it's secured um, Mm -hmm. in a gun safe or something like that, the risk is still there. Okay. Because when I think about that, the difference is um, a gun wound by accident versus the intent to end your life. That's a big difference. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about children and adolescents, we're talking about people who are struggling with impulsivity sometimes just naturally, right? Um, So some may have uh, greater struggles with that than others. Um, ADHD, for example, is another mental health risk factor um, that we do know of. Um, But even um, adolescents and youth without ADHD can be impulsive in a moment. And that's what we know about suicide. They are suicidal crises for a reason. Mm -hmm. They happen, they're a moment in time. It's like a perfect storm. And during that perfect storm, if someone has access to a weapon, their likelihood of having an attempt or unfortunately losing their life to suicide is so much higher. Mm -hmm. So if we can restrict access to things that could be used as a means to die by suicide, then that's a very important step parents can take to protect their child. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know I was um, reading, we get National Geographic, and the one of the latest issues was about the face transplant, and oh, yeah. the girl who had had it, you know, mm-hmm. it was a moment in time, had been dumped by a boyfriend, and um, the incredible damage that that gun had done. So she attempted to die by suicide, very lucky to survive, just the amount of damage a, a gun can do. And so I think that's really important for people to understand. Any other um, lethal means that maybe parents don't think of? Like something that comes to mind to me is like medications, right? Absolutely. That's the first thing that comes to mind um, for me, too, after um, guns is medications. And parents, um, you know, may not think a lot about that. They may even have old medication, you know, from something, a procedure they had two years ago or something laying around. I know. I think I have pain medication from my C-section eight years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) I think if we all searched our medicine cabinets, we might find some very old things that we didn't realize we were hanging on to. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, just giving some consideration to that. What do I have around the house that maybe I haven't thought about in a while or maybe even that you have but that Mm -hmm. needs to be locked away Mm -hmm. um, or in some cases completely, you know, removed from the home? It's funny because I feel like the work that we do, I don't keep um, acetaminophen in my house because I feel like one of the things that I have seen year after year year is attempts with acetaminophen um, or Tylenol and the amount of liver damage that mm-hmm, is yeah. created by that. And so it, it, 
even though that's not it's not something I am consciously thinking of, it's also not something I bring into the house because I'm, I'm thinking about the degree yeah. of damage associated with that. Or if you need it in your house, buy the small bottles instead yes. of the Costco size bottles. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're talking about what to do to get the the child struggling connected with support, but I'm also guessing that parents need a lot of support through this too. So, any resources for parents? Yes, parents really do need a lot of support through this. I think that's a great point, and I work with so many wonderful parents who often, you know, neglect the fact that they, in fact, need care and support. Having your child struggle with suicide, I think, is such a hard thing um, for for any parent. So understandable that it would impact all family members, siblings even too sometimes. Um, And so I encourage parents to reach out for their own counseling. Um, That's part of why I like our dialectical behavior therapy program is that while we are teaching adolescents healthy coping skills, we are also teaching parents those same skills and giving them a sense of community where they can meet with other parents who have the same challenges that they're facing with their child. Suicide can be a very isolating issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really try to put forward to people about suicide is that silence is suicide's best friend. Mm-hmm. That is true for an individual who's struggling with suicide, but that is also true for families who are trying to support a loved one struggling with suicide. It's so much harder when you're trying to go it alone. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think that, I mean, one of the things that I always think about with, with our dialectical behavior therapy parent group is one, one thing I will say to sometimes to our group is, like, look around because everybody in this room knows exactly what it's like to struggle. And I always call this, like, this is not social media parenting, right? This is not the thing that we broadcast on our social media, yet it is something that a lot of parents go through. And, um, you know, I always think about the fact that if they could have a little bit more support and connection, it helps them out. And even, like, a question that I think will come up sometimes is when a, a, t- a child is struggling and they want to spend time with a friend, and sometimes the parents feel like, I know our environment is safe, but I don't want to break their confidentiality or I don't want them to feel betrayed, but at the same time I've got to check out the other environment and make sure it's safe too. Do you have any guidance on that, Amanda? That can be tough. Um, I think a lot of times in the past I've encouraged parents if they're worried about that and they don't want to connect with the other family to find out if that's truly a safe environment, then you should host Mm -hmm. those kids at your house where you know that things are safe or you're taking them somewhere, you know, in public that you feel comfortable with. Uh, but you really have to look at that. I mean, we know that there have been, you know, suicides that have occurred um, as a result of gaining access to things in other people's homes or environments. Yeah. Uh, but that's tough because you want to respect um, your child's privacy and you don't want to violate that connection um, and trust that you're building. But at the same time, that's a risk factor. Same thing with schools, right? A lot of parents struggle with, do I tell my child's school or not? Yeah. Um, and that is always, you know, an individual decision. But um, depending on the nature of some of what your child might be struggling with, sometimes in order to keep your child safe at school, you may need to talk to the school. Yeah. And they do have confidentiality laws that they have to follow as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a little more protection. Um, in that type of situation as opposed to maybe hoping that a family friend would respect one's privacy. Yeah, yeah. And another question I come across, and I don't think I've ever had the chance to ask you or prep you for it, so, (laughs) but uh, since you are really a specialist in suicidology, 
something that comes up sometimes is, will my child outgrow this? And any thoughts on that? Is this something that we expect to see change over time and development? This absolutely can change over time. I mean, there are many, many, many people who have struggled with suicide at one point in their life and feel like that's no longer something that they struggle with. And there are also people who struggle with it lifelong. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Kevin Hines is a great example of this. He's one of the very few people who have um, survived a suicide attempt off of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. And he says, I mean, he's a very powerful activist, very big Uh, voice um, in suicide prevention these days and does wonderful work but even he says you know sometimes I still struggle with these thoughts Mm -hmm. and this was a long time ago in his life Um, and so he's learned ways now to manage it so Mm -hmm. it can really go either way but if your child does struggle with this in the long term there are ways that they can cope with this Yeah, and I think that it's important to think about, like, that goes back to being open to having the conversation, because I think that, in my experience, people who experience suicidal thoughts, they'll kind of ebb and flow, come and go, and almost the less freaked out we are by them or the more comfortable we are discussing them and being open, the more likely we are to be able to not be ruled by them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's um, some wonderful research that's being done with kind of real-time assessment Mm -hmm. of suicidal thoughts, and they're having folks use smartphones and kind of do ratings throughout the day. And we used to think it was just this kind of upward linear trajectory Mm -hmm. from someone, you know, developing first thoughts, you know, all the way to an attempt. And that's not how it works. Instead, it's this amazing, like, up, down, up, down, up, down, almost like a roller coaster. I mean, there are waves of this that come and go. And so Mm -hmm. being able to kind of ride the wave, right, recognize what's happening, how to get help when you need it mm-hmm. um, and how to put these thoughts in context can help but that's something that most people the vast majority uh, I would say are going to need some professional support to learn how to manage that yeah yeah and I, I think I see it sometimes too where when they've gone through a period where things have been going well and then the thoughts creep in sometimes they'll get really terrified because it's like oh I, I thought I was over this and maybe I'm always going to go through this so I think it's helpful for them to know how much these thoughts can change and how much they'll appear and I like the idea of the riding the wave because they really are going to have some shifts absolutely well Amanda thank you so much for joining us today a couple of events if you're in the Charlotte area that we would love to make you guys aware of um so the first is the out of the darkness walk and that is when Amanda so that's October 20th, um, uptown in Ramirez Bearden Park. Um, the actual walk itself is from 2 to 4, um, but registration begins at 1 o'clock that day. It's free to register. Um, anybody can come out. It's a very family-friendly event. Um, it's very positive. It's very hope-filled, um, and we'd love to have folks come join us. And the other event is Survivor's Day. Can you talk her a little bit about what Survivor's Day is. Yes, so International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day is um, an event that the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um, puts on annually the Saturday before Thanksgiving each year. Um, We know holidays can be really hard for individuals who've lost anyone, Um, and this day is a chance for people who've lost a loved one to suicide to come together um, for hope and healing. Mm -hmm. Um, Here at Southeast Psych, we offer um, an event that day from 9 o'clock to 11.15 down in our Ballantine office. Um, it's free and you know anyone who's experienced this type of loss is welcome to attend and you can find registration on AFSP's website, afsp.org. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Amanda. And this is such a big topic, we decided to break it into two. So um, we will be meeting again to discuss suicide postvention. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Curious Mother. Learn more at www.thecuriousmother.com, where you will find resources related to episode topics. Please join our community and add your voice. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for listening.